This is Utah Survivors Podcast with your host, Brandon and Alex. In the world of true crime TV, we're bringing you the story straight from the survivors. Victims don't become survivors without the help of a community. So every week, we will have a 30-minute interview alternating between a survivor of crime and an organization that helps victims in similar situations. Due to the graphic nature of crime, many of the topics we discuss may be difficult for some listeners. If you are in crisis or triggered by these discussions, please reach out to local and national hotlines listed on our website, utahsurvivors.org. Welcome to another episode of Utah Survivors. This week we have Tanya McGrath, who is the co-founder of Bikers Against Domestic Violence, and Krista Flink, who is the project director of Bikers Against Domestic Violence. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. We usually start off first with saying, like, tell us about yourself. So we'll start with who wants to go first, Krista? Sure. Tell us about yourself. Thank you. So again, I am the project director for Bikers Against Domestic Violence. Um, I was brought in only two weeks in, I think, from the start of our nonprofit. And it's been nothing but a whirlwind. But kind of to summarize who I am, I am a mother of two girls and This is obviously not my daytime job. So I work as a project manager for a direct selling company. Lots of project managing going on in your life. Yes. Hence the reason why I was brought on board uh, by Uh Tanya here. So that's awesome. How old are your kiddos? They will be 14 and 12 next month. Oh, I have mine's eight and I'm terrified for those years. I will add that she is a single mother. Oh, welcome to the club. (laughs) Me too. (laughs) Me three. No, you're not. (laughs) Tanya, tell, Tanya. Us about, tell us about yourself. I am a mother of four. My oh. kids range in ages from 20 to five. Oh my, that's a range. So I have a 20-year-old, a an almost 19-year-old, an almost 17-year-old, and a five-year-old. That's quite the gap. Yes, it is. And my first three children are from um, my previous marriage that was abusive and just uh i wanted a better life for them so mm-hmm. ended up marrying my best friend and Aww. he was not supposed to be able to have children but lo and behold we have a five-year-old <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> oops we, we now have a five-year-old and she is just uh yeah so she's reminding me why people have children when they're young oh i can only imagine yes yes but she's a good reminder to tell you to slow down a little bit yes Yes, she is. Because I look at my older kids and I'm like, gosh, where did, where did the time go? You mm-hmm. know, and I just want to, I feel like she's a second chance with my three older kids. They were all so little at the same time that I just yeah. wished their adolescence away, I feel like. And with her, it's... You so, survived. I survived it, <laughs> yes. And so with her, it's just one of those things where I want to enjoy her childhood. Yeah. Keep her my baby. I know. My eight-year-old, if I say, who's my baby? He still says, I'm your baby. And it's getting a little more reluctant. reluctant. Well, I can't speak. (laughs) He's a little more against it now. We'll say that because I can't speak English apparently. What else is new? I know. Um, Well, why don't we kind of just start by having you tell how you how you came to this point. Um, we obviously were talking a little bit before we started recording, but um, let's, if, if you're comfortable, Tanya, having you kind of share your journey so far um, up and leading you up into this point and we'll, 
pipe in and ask questions, but okay. um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I grew up in a, in an abusive home and it, the, the abuse was fueled by alcohol, alcoholism. And mm-hmm. um, it was one of those things where my dad was the most amazing person when he was sober and could be just not when he was drunk. So mm-hmm. um, my, Kind of going back even further than that, my mom was a victim of sexual abuse as a child. Her stepdad had sexually molested her when she was from age six till age 11. And so she just, you know, there was a cycle of abuse already. and, Mm -hmm. And so she was afraid to leave. She was afraid to ever report any of the abuse. And Mm -hmm. my dad was, you know, friends with all of the small town law enforcement anyway. So when something major did end up happening when I was 17 years old, it was swept under the rug. Nothing was done about it. There were no charges pressed against him for it. He was Mm -hmm. in, he went to jail for 11 hours after um, pulling a loaded gun on my, on me and pulling the trigger And so it just, I didn't have a whole lot of support, I guess, Mm -hmm. at that time, which then led me into a relationship with someone who was much older than me, um, an unhealthy relationship from the start. I was 17 years old. He was 32. Yeah. And to me at the time, it didn't... It didn't seem weird because we got along really well. But then in hindsight, I look back and... It was one of those things where I was obviously not in a good place because of the abuse that I dealt with. Um, I guess I didn't think I deserved better, and he showed interest, and so... It's comfortable, right? Like, it's it's a chance to almost get out of what you're into. Yeah, well, and I met him shortly after my um, the incident with my dad, and so I was really depressed. I was Mm -hmm. suicidal. I was not in a good place mentally, so I was very vulnerable mm-hmm. to anyone who was willing to show me any type of love and affection. Of so I continued the cycle that yeah. I had been, you know, the, from where my mom, you know, well, she, the old, cycle. Yeah, how old were you when your dad pulled the gun on you? I had just turned 17. So young. Were you, can I ask if you were injured? I was not injured. Oh, th- thank goodness. No, yeah. like not physically, of course. Oh, yeah. Like, obviously, you were injured. <laughs> that was the worst question ever. Did, <laughs> did anything affect you from that? No. Right, right. <laughs> physically well, injured. And it was one of those things where um, after the gun didn't go off, he proceeded to beat my mom. Oh. So while I was on the phone with um, the dispatcher, the 911 dispatcher, who happened to be a family friend of ours, because again, small town, mm-hmm. um, she knew me and she knew my mom. And so she kept me calm throughout the call. And I remember the most terrifying thing for me was being in my bedroom, looking on the phone with dispatch, looking down on the front yard um, where where this was happening and all of a sudden, police cars from the local police, the, the local county sheriff, and then there were um, highway patrol showed up. And then mm-hmm. all of a sudden, like the county south of us, like there were so many police cars there and they all formed a circle around my dad and had their guns pulled on him. Mm-hmm. And for some reason, even though I had just been victimized, I felt so bad for my dad in that moment. And... I just remember, for some reason, I wanted to run down and give him a hug. 
And mm-hmm. I can't explain that. It's something that I think victims, you know, you still love your abuser. That's what I was going to say is you're getting at exactly the what I think is part of the most complicated thing with domestic violence is you truly do love this person. Right. Whether it's your spouse or your parents, it doesn't mm-hmm. it doesn't matter. You still love that person. And yeah. I felt so bad for him. And then when the victim advocate showed up, she was some she was my grandma's next door neighbor oh my god my, like total small town yes and so like everyone shows up on summer picnic and when the cops are called exactly <laughs> so i remember sitting there with her and she'd known my dad almost his entire life because mm-hmm. she lived in the house next door to where my dad grew up and that was really hard too because a lot of the people who know my dad really well would never ever imagine he would do anything like that so it was um it, it was a very tough situation to be in because it was almost like they'd known my dad his whole life and you know what would have led him to do something like this yeah L- little did they know it wasn't a one-time thing it was something that happened quite often when i was growing up but he never showed that side of himself to anyone other than us mm-hmm. and so which is normal right like I did a training of bishops from somehow I got roped into training bishops, which was great, but it was a group that like did not know anything. Right. And I said, it's probably like the leaders in your person's ward who are beating their wife and, and literally audible gasp of like, (gasps) it's true. Like they always, Mm -hmm. you never know what's happening and they always seem, they're so gregarious. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it does. It happens in the most unlikely of places, I think. Mm -hmm. And, so we got out. Um, my dad was released from jail, and we had a protective order against him, and we were told we didn't have to show up to court because, uh-huh. you know, it was a domestic situation. So they said that we didn't have to show up, and then we never heard anything else about it, and we found out that the charges were dropped. Oh, wow. So we don't really understand why. I mean, part of me was really upset by that, but then another part of me, because— even now when I talk to him, he's the happy-go-lucky. I don't think there's ever any incidents with him anymore. I, I don't know if he's, he's sober now. He is sober. He mm-hmm. doesn't he doesn't drink, and he's in a very happy relationship with his um, significant other now. He's helping her raise her grandchildren, and they're getting the dad that my brother and I wish we could have had. Yeah. And so I'm happy for him, mm-hmm. um, and I really do hope that he continues to have an amazing life. And um, I was able to forgive him slowly. It took, it took a while. It took, you know, meeting him for, because I moved to Utah Mm -hmm. shortly after that happened. I met um, my first husband, the one who was so much older than me. And we ended up moving out here to Utah um, because that happened in Iowa. And that's a long way at 17. Yeah. So I was 19 19 when I moved out here, 20 when I moved out here. Um, But it started out just meeting him for coffee because he's an over the road truck driver. So Mm -hmm. we would meet for coffee and then I could leave. I didn't feel like I was stuck with him, you know, or in, in a situation that made me feel uncomfortable. And then I would invite him to my house for dinner. And it just we slowly built a relationship that now I feel like. Um, either his mental health has improved because he's worked on himself or the drinking has stopped. So that's made a big difference as well. But I am able to have a good relationship with him now. And, but that doesn't change the fact that what I went through in my childhood 
kind of forced me into that same cycle. Yeah. And like my, my first husband was not physically abusive. He never hit me. And so I always made excuses for the abuse that I did go through because I always said, if, if he ever hits me, I'm gone, but I'll, I put up with a lot of stuff. Which almost makes it harder. It does. Because, like, the physical hitting, you're like, oh, that's a line, right? You can see the line. Right. You touched me. But everything else in your mind can be justifiable. Absolutely. Like, my son's favorite thing is, well, sometimes the line is in the sand, and sometimes the wind blows and kind of moves sand from one side of the line to the other. Oh, totally. <laughs> totally. And you're like, and now there's no line. And now there's no Lines line. are imaginary. That's really what it is. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it was a lot of, for him, it was also mental health mm-hmm. because he was struggling with himself and... I don't think he ever meant to take that out on me, but it started with jealousy was Mm -hmm. a big one. And um, just accusing me of doing things I wasn't doing, following me, watching, watching my every move, accusing me of, you know, cheating and being like, you didn't really go to the gym. Mm -hmm. You met, you met up with somebody. I'm like, I went with your daughter. (laughs) Like I was at the gym with. With your daughter. And so, and he's even admitted to me since then how irrational everything that he did to me was, how Mm -hmm. it didn't make sense. And he doesn't even understand why he did it. Mm -hmm. But he's also now in a position where he's able to admit that his mental health hasn't always been the best and um, that that's what really led to a lot of the emotional abuse that he put me through. And then when I left him, because I couldn't put up with the things he was doing, it got worse. Uh-huh. And it was after I left that that's when the threats of, you know, he, w- he was going to kill me or he would break into my house while I was gone and steal things and try to gaslight me. Into so it thinking, escalated when yeah, you saw safety. Yes, it escalated and he would just show up in the middle of the night and there, it, there were nights that, you know, the kids, most of the time, they wouldn't even sleep in their own bed because they were worried that he was going to come in in the middle of the night and kill me. Yeah. Because that's the threats he was making. And they heard it and saw it. Yes. And it wasn't hidden from them. Right. And now I'm in a position where I'm like, he was never going to kill me. But at the time. But at the time, I did not know that. No. I, I was very scared. And if it wasn't for Krista, I would not have made it through that time. Oh. It was very, very hard to get through that. And and he would say things to the kids that if you tell my, if you tell your mom I was here, I'll kill myself and you'll never see me again. Mm-hmm. So it was a lot of mind games with the kids, um, a lot of really scary moments where he would ask the kids what I was wearing when I left for work. And then he would start messaging me, you know, telling me, like, I know you wore a green shirt. You know, yeah. I, I know you're at Walmart right now wearing a green shirt. And he, so he started stalking and you. It, yeah, it was really because he was finding out, using the kids to find out what I was wearing when I left the house. So he was using the kids to gain, yes. keep control of you. Yeah. And so, and um, there were times like he would break into my car and and oh I, I was stupid enough to leave my purse in my car with all of my rent money and he stole it. Aww. And I had to play his game to get it back and meet him in a dark parking lot somewhere to try to get my purse back. And, yeah. and my rent money was gone. And so just things to try to 
to try to cripple me so that I would need him. He would mess with my car so that I had to call him because mm-hmm. um, his dad is a mechanic. And so it was like he would do something to my car and then his dad would have to come tow my car to the shop. And that meant I had to have communication with him. So mm-hmm. that was his way of staying close to me. And um, unfortunately, without a protective order, there wasn't, and he was always so sly about it. There was no way yeah. I could ever prove that he did any of the things he was doing. And um, unfortunately, without a protective order, there wasn't a lot that law enforcement could do for me. No, you were in the, like the area where we know you're high without a risk, like you're high at mm-hmm. risk of being harmed. Right. But our laws are so black and white. They really are. And it wasn't until it was the stupidest thing. Like he broke a 50 cent picture frame that I bought at a garage sale. Mm -hmm. And this one officer came and he saw that broken on the street. And that's all it took. He's like, I'm going to go arrest him right now. We finally have enough. We, We have something. And I'm like, wow, he can threaten to kill me and no one can do anything, but he breaks a 50-cent picture frame and he can go to jail for that. Yeah. It was crazy that, to me. Like that that statement right there, the irony there, that that is our system. It's yep. true. It's insane. Well, and, that and, uh, abusers often escalate their behavior when they start to lose control to try to get any sense of control back because uh-huh. that's their whole purpose is controlling the victims, controlling the people that they had power over. And then once that power starts to go away, they escalate to try to get to that point. Right. And I mean, absolutely. The, the fact that we can't get past that within our laws is. I'm sure you remember right. that night. Oh, I do. Not only. I remember the picture. It was, a, it was of her <laughs> girls. Oh, yes. even more. Yeah. And so the, and what was weird about it is, I mean, he had threatened to kill me in front of my kids, in front of her kids, in front of her. Mm-hmm. And then he breaks this picture frame. And not only is he charged with domestic criminal mischief, but all of a sudden five counts of domestic violence in the presence of a child. Oh, wow. So it was just like. Wow, you know, even though the kids didn't see him break the frame, but because he was there, but because they were there and uh-huh. they knew that what had happened, um, so that honestly is what helped me get my protective order. Because I had went and I had applied, and of course, I'm not going to lie to get the protective order. Yeah. At first, it was like, well, I don't really think he's going to physically hurt me. They're like, okay, well, then there's no danger. You don't need a protective yeah. order. And then I'm like, yeah, I actually think he's really going to hurt me. You know, they're like, well, does he have weapons? I'm like, no. You know, so I tried yeah. three and times. Like, do you have proof of the threats? Right. Do you have proof uh. of the threats? And, and um, so I tried three times to get a protective order. And it that that picture frame is what did it. I was able to get a protective Yay. order. That yard sale. Uh, yes. <laughs> and so I... Got the protective order, and, of course, the very first thing he did was violate it. Oh, of course. He called me from the jail, and huh. instead of, you know, it's like, please say your state your name or whatever, um, it was explicitive. <laughs> it mm-hmm. was a, another, instead of his name, it was a threat towards me. Of course. So it was like, do you accept a call from... And that's all recorded, so that's nice. And then something I can't probably say on you your can, podcast. You can probably say it. You're fine. I like, edit it. Oh, he was like, yeah. um, he said, well, would you like to accept a call from, you're a whore. 
<laughs> and you're like, I know who this is. I was expecting much worse, actually. I I so expect- I'm probably going to leave that in there. That but one, yeah. <laughs> that one was one one of many. It yeah. was like every time he would violate the protective order, then the name would get worse and worse from the jail calls. From the jail calls. And oh my gosh. So I finally. Um, I tried contacting the jail and I was, I just was like, well, how are you guys even allowing this? Yeah. You're like, I am the victim. I'm like, I'm the victim. First of all, he shouldn't even be allowed to call me Mm -hmm. from jail and he should be charged if he does. Mm -hmm. And that in itself should be a, you know, a threat towards me, you know? Yeah. Um, he was, he was in uni and um for an attempted suicide because that was another one of his well it was a suicide threat he uses suicide to which is very common very common um so he was in uni and he was calling me from uni and it just didn't make sense to me how he was able to call me yeah knowing i had a protective order against him and you know he was being allowed to contact me like sure call her yeah go ahead are you not gonna kill yourself we don't get call her (laughs) so that was um that was in like 2013 2014 i dealt with all of that and it it really continued until he was facing, you know, felony charges. He had violated the protective order enough times that he finally realized he needed to stop. Well, plus my husband and I, my current husband and I got together in 2014 and okay. he was terrified of my current husband. Oh, very nice. He made it very clear that he was mm-hmm. to leave me alone. That's and nice. so he listened. And then in 2020 in February is when like, well, I'd already been thinking about ways that I could help other victims because my current husband is just one of those people that wants to uplift me and wants to make me, you know, allow me to be the best person I can be mm-hmm. and supportive in every way. And so I was thinking of ways I could take my own personal experience and build other people up. Yeah. And then in February of 2020 is when my friend Natalie was killed. And I just remember thinking to myself, man, if this can happen to her, it can happen to anybody. Yeah. Because she was the strongest, one of the strongest women that I knew. She didn't put up with any crap from anybody. Mm -hmm. And I'd even asked her dad at her funeral if, um, if he had taken her own gun from her and killed her because it wasn't like her to not have her weapon on her and Mm -hmm. she was you know she'd been shooting guns she was good at shooting guns and Mm -hmm. she was all about that and it just kind of it it didn't make sense to me how she could be a victim yeah and so at her at her celebration of life i met trevor and emily jarris and they i got up at her celebration of life and told my favorite story about her and how so, um, we were riding our motorcycle down I-15 one day, and this truck was just, like, dangerously close to the back of my bike. And mm-hmm. then he came whipping around and almost took me out. And Natalie, being Natalie, <laughs> decided she was going to let him know how she felt about that. And she <laughs> Truck ro- versus motorcycle. Yes, she rode her motorcycle up, which I'm amazed her bike can even go that fast. But she rode her bike up next to him and was flipping him off and yelling and screaming at him about what mm-hmm. he did to me. 
And I was terrified. I'm like, oh my gosh, Natalie, you need to calm down. Let's just get off the freeway. (laughs) Road rage is not good on a motorcycle. Yeah. And so when I got up and told that story, Trevor and Emily came up to me afterwards. They're like, so you're the one. Because she had went to their house that evening and told them what happened. And so we connected that way. So glad you could join us this week and be with us as this survivor has opened up their heart and story in the hope that it may inspire someone. Information about this week's interview can be found on our website, utahsurvivors.org. Trauma creates change you don't choose. Healing is about creating the change you do choose. This program is supported in part by grant number 18W2025 from the Utah Office for Victims of Crime, awarded by the Office on Violence Against Women. The opinions, findings, conclusions, and recommendations expressed in this program are those of the hosts and guests and do not necessarily reflect the views of the Office on Violence Against Women, the U.S. Department of Justice, or the Utah Office for Victims of Crime. Our theme song is DNA by Najee featuring Amber Lynn.